Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Continuing the Call, a Seminary Dropout's Guide to Discernment. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Austin Habish. Austin is the founder of Scent Evangelization, which is a door-to-door apostolate centered around evangelization and really reaching people where they're at. He's also the founder of Think Catholic, which is another online evangelization apostolate centered around catechesis and formation um, and really just putting out awesome content. In this conversation, Austin breaks down his time as a diocesan seminarian, uh, but then also his time he spent uh, discerning the lifestyle of a Carthusian monk. Austin breaks down his two years in the Carthusian monastery, the times of prayer, that lifestyle, and uh, really how it's given him the grace to continue his discernment uh, to where he is now. As you listen to this, please say a prayer for Austin and his continued discernment. Once again, I ask that you follow along, share the show, and really um, keep supporting it so we can keep having awesome conversations like this one. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mr. Austin Habish. Well, Austin, thanks so much for for being here. Uh, Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and we'll take it from there? Uh, Yeah, thank you, Thomas. Thanks for having me on. Um, So my name is Austin Habish. I'm the founder of Think Catholic Consent Evangelization. Those are the two apostolates that I spent most of my time uh, with. And um, yes, still discerning, of course. I'm right now a single layman, um, but we're going to talk about discernment here, of course. But uh, for all those who are listening, please pray for me, pray for my discernment, and I will be praying for those who will hear this. Awesome. Yeah, no, and I definitely want to kind of break down all those bits. Obviously, a lot of your ministries and apostolates that you're involved in are fantastic, and a lot of um, kind of your own um, result of discernment and prayer. So want to break those down. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up. I, I love, you know, obviously I have conversations with um, men and women who are already ordained or um, professed religious. So like, it's always nice when I get to have conversations with people who are like in the thick of it, because um, I think it helps. So, and uh, as you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's beautiful, it's awesome, but it's also difficult. So um, it's great to hear that, uh, yeah, it's the spirit's still working and uh, figure out well, where you'll end up. Do you want to go and start just a little bit about kind of your background? Did you grow up Catholic? When was kind of, uh, we'll get into a little bit, but you spent some time um, with both discerning diocesan priesthood and the religious life. Um, but where did all that start? What was kind of that first uh, encounter with God that you've had? Okay, well, um, the relevant background. So I was raised in a kind of a half Catholic home. My mom taking me to mass with my sisters. Uh, my dad at the time, I think he would consider himself agnostic. Um, so I'm, I'm going to a Catholic elementary school. I'm going to mass on Sundays. Um, I would always feel like I had this Catholic identity that would stick with me up until college. But a lot of my class, unfortunately, we would hold the Catholic name, but we would lose the ethics. So we wouldn't necessarily be going to confession in college. Very few of us continue to go to mass. I myself would leave mass attendance, would leave the Catholic faith kind of more in an official way after a class in college. So I took an intro to philosophy class. It was just one of the gen eds that I had to do to get my bachelor's at the University of Kansas. And for our final paper, we had to defend one of three things. It was either uh, free will, uh, compatibilism, or materialist determinism. And I remember our the t- uh, teaching assistant's uh, assistant going through those uh, various positions. And he said, if you're going to defend free will, you're going to have to discuss the soul or the immateriality of the mind. And I didn't know that those two go hand in hand. They either come together or they're lost together. Because if you're just atoms, there's no such thing as freely or voluntarily choosing anything. 
So I listened to him speak and it seemed to me, and he didn't say this, but it seemed to me that he didn't really feel like there were good grounds for the soul. So I wrote my paper on materialist determinism. And I remember arguing with my Protestant friend, who's now a Protestant uh, pastor, about my paper. And I felt like I had won that argument. So I was convinced that there was really nothing more to me or to the world than Adams. And that was really the end of kind of my religious journey at that point. Uh, luckily, the same person would bring me back into, I would um, probably end my sophomore year, the hedonist life uh, had not delivered what it promised, which I think a lot of people discover, sadly, given enough time that when you when you kind of abandon yourself to uh, pleasure, uh, the human in you, it just is is never really fulfilled. I mean, we're not uh, we're not just animals, as Aristotle said. We're the rational animal, so we we're satisfied by the truth, which is God. And anything short of that, our heart just rejects or it it starves on. And and so I finally realized that, <clears throat> not explicitly, but I was feeling that way. So I go to my Protestant friend, kind of looking for answers and help. He brings me into the non-denominational church. I'm doing that for the rest of my college career, and I might have stayed there if it wasn't for two things. The first is one time when I was back home, my mom took me to Catholic Mass. Now, the non-denominational church had taught me that all churches were essentially the same. Just go where you think the preaching is good. Go where you like the music. And so I would go to my non-denom church at, in Lawrence, where I was going to school and working. And then when I went back home, I would go to Catholic Mass, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with doing both. I hear a homily at this Mass, and the priest says, as Catholics, we believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And our Protestant, a lot of our other Christian brothers don't necessarily believe that. And Thomas, I had never heard that. Now, I had grown up through the Catholic school system as a Catholic. I had always known what I believed but I had never known that that was unique to the Catholics. Now I could have, I could have looked at the Orthodox as well, but growing up in a small village in Kansas, yeah, I didn't, I'm not sure I was even aware of uh, the Orthodox church. So for me, it was just the Catholics who believed this, that in transubstantiation. So now I needed to figure out what was true. Is Jesus truly present in the Eucharist or is it a symbol or something, something else? So I call a priest and I asked the priest, I didn't tell him really that I was going to the non-denom church or that I, I was a fallen away Catholic, but I was just kind of asking him questions about the Eucharist. He told me two things. Look at John 6, which to, today, you know, my dad is Catholic today. One of the two reasons he'll say that made him Catholic is that you cannot read John 6 differently than the true presence of the Eucharist. Uh, so that was one. Look at read John six. He said the second. He said is read Justin Martyr writing to the emperor of the time. Apology one. We've got this super long, as you're aware, Thomas. I'm sure this super long description of what it means to be a Christian in the second century. And he says in there, and we believe that uh, the one who presides when he prays over the bread and wine that it's not just bread and wine, but it becomes the flesh of Christ Jesus who took on flesh. And I said, if anybody knows. It's not 2,000, you know, 16 Americans here trying to figure out what Jesus thought and taught. It's this guy in the second century. So I resolved to go back. 
I go back and now I'm learning what it means to be Catholic. Now at the end of, let's see, 2015, I believe I graduated from college. So around 2015, 2016, I'm discovering what it means to be Catholic. Somewhere in here, I hear a man talking about Our Lady of Fatima at the campus center in Lawrence. I was there and there was a talk and he's talking about Our Lady of Fatima. And he talks about how she said, go to confession every first Saturday. And I thought to myself, man, I have not been to confession since I received first confession, first reconciliation possibly. And so I resolved to go to confession. I went to confession. That, so the, the sacramental grace from there combined with, I heard a focus talk on prayer that you need to pray. And so I began praying the rosary daily. So the cleansing of my soul, allowing grace to be infused, and then invoking God's assistance, asking for God's grace through the rosary, those things changed me. I mean, I changed overnight, Thomas. And there's many times in my Protestant life where people would come up to me and say, so when did you commit yourself to Christ? Or when did you really become a follower? When were you converted? And I would tell them of moments where I thought I'd recommitted or there had been a different, you know, a definite change in my practice. But this was the first time that my desires changed. And for me, that was like a deep, deep foundational fundamental change. The first thing is for the longest time I had, you know, I'd love the gym, kind of grown up in the gym every day. You know, you're doing your two a days in the gym, you've got your little uh what a plastic um containers of your chicken and rice and <laughs> Thomas, I don't know if you've ever lived this life. Maybe you're currently this is your uh your diet, but I was I was very serious about, you know, getting shredded. And all of a sudden that was less of a priority. I mean, I really let that go. Um, I lost a lot of weight. I remember a, a, a girl I used to know was at a bar and she looked at me and she said, you just don't look like you. And I wasn't me. I was changing. So that was the first. The second is I began to have this incredible love for my family, my immediate family. So I would call my mom. I would call my sisters every day. Uh, which they uh, quickly stopped picking up the phone. You know, your siblings answer the phone when it's an emergency, <laughs> but when it's a day-to-day -day call, uh, my sisters were like, you know, we'll see you uh, when you come visit. But I really loved my family. That was that new love for my immediate family that had fallen from heaven. So my I was changing. I also, in this time, I turned down a promotion that I I, I was working at the University of Kansas as the marketing coordinator of international programs. And I had been promoted to a job in Boston, which was kind of the HQ for the company I was working for, even though I was on site at the University of Kansas. I turned that down and I had never done that before, Thomas. It was always get the next job, get the next job. My, my life was very simple. So now I'm unrecognizable to myself. So I hear about a thing called spiritual direction and I go to the spiritual direction. And I, I didn't know how to do spiritual direction. Well, was my part. So I came in with a Bible verse that I'd always liked. Matthew 19, 21, the young rich ruler comes up to Jesus. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says back to him, you know, if you would be perfect, sell all that you have, you have treasure and heaven can follow me. And I'd always loved that verse. It always been lodged in my heart for as long as I could remember. So I tell the priest this, and he pauses, and he says, this is our very first time meeting. He says, have you ever thought about being a priest? And I sat back, 
And Thomas, growing up kind of Catholic and knowing Catholic priests, there's many times that a priest had said to me, hey, like, have you ever considered being a priest? And I just remember how little of an impact that had on my heart. And it was really because my heart was outside of grace. It's a, I mean, it's a divine call. And for so much of my life, I hadn't been to confession. And so it, it couldn't have any impact on me, really. But now, here I am. I've gone to confession. I'm trying to live the sacramental life. I'm trying to pray. And my response to him was, I'm afraid to think about it because I'm afraid I'm not, I do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm now I'm hearing my own words, like <laughs> yeah. Know, now the genie's out of the bottle. Once he once he's saying, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, you feel it doesn't it. go back. Right? We yeah. have to deal with it now. Yeah. Now, real quick, I'm glad you mentioned this kind of idea that as you know, you're going through this conversion, um, even things like a promotion, you know, that that normally you were kind of searching after and was kind of the logical step, just didn't really appeal to you. Um, was there any sort of discernment going on in the sense of you know? um what you actually wanted i mean i mean because so I, I see this a lot with people that um either are going through rcia or not like it's exhausting I, I think people really kind of you know we look around and we're like man why don't more people those of us who have either converted or have had a reversion um are kind of looking around we're like man why isn't everyone doing this why isn't every you know protestant coming to the catholic church saying hey you claim this why why is you know um should i believe it sort of thing um, and I think we forget how exhausting and tiring it is. Um, so while all of this is going on, I mean, yeah, what other effects is it having kind of in your day-to-day -day life? Or um, is this kind of stuff that's happening on the side? Or how are you managing this kind of like deep soul-searching reversion with um, the day-to-day -day life of the world? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm still going to work. I turned down the promotion. I'm still in the world, but my heart, has left it. <laughs> There's a verse that I love. I pray I'm not uh, getting it incorrect. I think it's Song of Songs, chapter eight, verse six, but it's, and I took it as a motto when I was a Carthusian. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. What does that mean? So uh, Thomas, your love for your wife has effectively killed your love for all non-wife women. Okay, so love love is a kind of death. You love one thing to the exclusion of other things. Love is strong as death. So my heart had died to the world. And, you know, God willing, it'll continue to do so. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The grave doesn't give people back. So Thomas, your love for your wife, it's not coming back, you know, to something else or to some other woman. Uh, yeah, so um, I was in the world, but... The exhaustingness of it, I was fortunate in that the Lord had prepared me up to this point by the gym and by the love for success. Both of those things require discipline, physical discipline. And from that physical discipline, uh, plus you, you have to develop a kind of work ethic, again, in either, either of those pursuits. Both of those kind of had distanced me from uh i want to say temporal desires that might be a little a little bit too generous to say at that time but at least like sensual delights you know with the, yeah. to be successful in the gym or in work you have to forego lower goods you know you have to give up sleep you have to give up certain kind of foods and so i was already kind of primed 
for a kind of abandonment of the world for the sake of the truth. Um, okay, so he's, he says this, I, I respond, I've always, um, I'm afraid to think about it because I'm afraid it might be what I'm supposed to do. And then he immediately uh, fires back. Um, oh, what I said to him was, but my dad's not Catholic right now. So if I go do the priest thing, who's going to take care of my dad? Meaning like, who's going to convert my dad? And uh, he, he said to me, uh, doesn't that sound like the man who says to Jesus, yeah, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. I said, sure, father. He said, you know what Jesus says back to that man? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Come follow me. I left that meeting having never thought about being a priest seriously in any way. Now positive that the Lord was calling me to go to seminary. I called the diocese from the parking lot. I got the application. I filled it out. I entered seminary that fall. My wow. dad went into the Catholic Church the Easter after me. Wow. So the, the long, agonizing discernment was not there. Maybe today, <laughs> but, but right there, I was positive that God was calling me to the seminary, to be a seminary. Now, so in that, I mean, was there something of the priesthood that attracted you in the priesthood specifically? Um, if so, what was that? Or, or, you know, was it just kind of that general idea of, you know, that kind of excitement of, hey, Christ, I want to follow you, and this is where you're inviting me? Uh, break that down. What what really made you uh, make that leap? I did not understand a lot about the Catholic faith, probably because I wasn't really Catholic through college, high school, not so much either. So... I think, and I've heard this story a lot of times, someone will have a, a very dramatic reversion or conversion to the Catholic faith, and they will exclaim, rightly so, you know, my God and my all, like, Lord, how do I serve you with everything? And the first thought, at least for the guys, is I will go be a priest. And uh, so that's kind of what I did, uh, Thomas, to be honest. I mean, I can look back, and there's definitely hints of the priesthood when I was in the sixth grade. I told my dad I wanted to be a priest. I told my uh, recess teacher I wanted to be a priest, you know, experiences in prayer. So there are those pieces, but I really didn't understand the different states of life within the Catholic Church. I just knew, Lord, how do I give you everything? I'm going to seminary. So I went to seminary. That's awesome. And yeah, what was it like? What was that experience like? Because that's the, uh, it's, there's always that shell shock, even if you've gone through that long agonizing discernment process where you've read every book and watched every video and you, you like, you think, you know, what the seminary is, no matter how much you prepare, you still get there and you're like, oh, this is way different. Um, so I can, <laughs> yeah. I can imagine how it was for you coming, not having that. Um, so what was it like when you get there? Well, Thomas, I see behind you the office, uh, the yep. brief, brief. One of the, <laughs> one of the things that I remember thinking to myself at the beginning was, a lot of these guys, I'd gone to major seminary immediately because I already had my bachelor's mm -hmm. degree, but a lot of these guys had done college seminary. So they arrive, they have their breweries, they know how it works. I've never even seen these series of books before. And then they tell us, you will be praying these, if you become a priest or a deacon, you'll be praying these five hours every day of your life. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, and I laughed at myself when I had this thought, but I remember thinking to myself, man, like, Someone should have told me this before I filled out the application, <laughs> you know, like, did I sign up for this? No one mentioned this. So yeah, I had to, I had to learn a lot. Um, probably the, the most interesting thing about the seminary 
which so going to seminary might be similar to someone's experience of going to mass or becoming Catholic. You, you read Catholicism out of the books and it is pristine and it is true and it is holy and it is good. And then you meet actual Catholics, you go to an actual Catholic church. So going to seminary was very much like that. Um, one of my seminary brothers who's now a priest, I heard him give a homily and he was reflecting back to seminary time. And he was saying, gosh, you just look around and you say, Lord, these guys, like, this is it. This is the plan. <laughs> and so that was a lot of my experience, just um, getting rid of the kind of the dream, the dream of the seminarian or the seminary that uh, I know this is real life. And we all need to be converted and no one here is perfect. And uh, the way of the cross. And... Mm -hmm. But in that time, I would learn about the different states within, you know, the different vocations, let's say, is it the religious state? Is it the sacrament of holy orders? Is it, is it marriage, the sacrament of marriage that is it single life? So I would learn those different kinds of life. As I was doing that, I realized that the call that Matthew 19, 21 is really where we get the religious state, not necessarily the secular priesthood, so we get those three vows, obedience, perfect continence, and poverty. And so I realized, Lord, you know, I feel like I'm, I should be a religious. I feel like that's the call. I went to seminary pursuing that life described in that verse. Well, the life described in that verse is the religious life. So then I started looking. Is it, uh, should I be an active religious? Should I be a contemplative religious? And one document really settled that for me. It's it's titled Umbratulum, and it was written by I want to say Pope Pius XI, and I could be wrong on that. On the Carthusian, he's approving, I believe, the statutes of the Carthusians in his day, like an update of the statutes. And he says in there, he says that there is no state of life more perfect than the Carthusian life and then he says it's and then looking at the difference between the active and contemplative life he says and it's easy to understand that those who practice prayer and penance do more for the building up of the church than those who labor in the vineyard so here i have the successor of peter telling me that here's the most you know abstractly considered most perfect life they will save more souls than the man out in the world so I said, okay, sign me up. So I got on a plane. That's awesome. Yeah, I want to I want to pick back up there, um, but I want to highlight, and I love that. Like, and this is kind of um, my biggest piece of advice always with the discernment is like, God doesn't waste our time, um, and that's a beautiful thing, and it, it gives people the hope that they need. I think to discern well, to take those leaps of faith, because it's like, hey, even if it, this isn't the end goal, um, God's not going to waste your time. Any time spent with God is good time spent. Um, and, and I think that highlights it, right? Like here you are coming through this kind of reversion, you're back to it. Obviously you're praying and you're, you're practicing Catholic and you love the faith, but like where else, but in the seminary, would you come across a document written by Pius the 11th, right? Like, it, like, it's one of those things where it's like, it just only makes sense. Um, when you look at it, right, we we're going through this mess and we're like, oh, this is, uh, I took a wrong turn here, a wrong turn here, here's a detour. But then like you look at it, right, from God's perspective or from, you know, this kind of uh, hindsight where you're like, oh no, what I thought was all these curves lines was actually 
perfectly straight and it makes sense um so it's, it's beautiful to see and i and i love that testament to it um however with that um the carthusians are about as different from the diocesan <laughs> seminary as you can get um do you want to share a little bit about the carthusians who they are and their kind of spirituality and just try to like get across kind of <laughs> the way that they live and why um, this change would be kind of seen as so radical to so many people so the Carthusians, their founder, St. Bruno, uh, he dies at about the end of the 11th century. So right around the time that we're getting the St. Dominics and the St. Francis, those, those very ancient, uh, very illustrious orders. He was looking to bring to the West this the feeling of the Desert Fathers in the East. So it would be a monastic life really focused on solitude. That's what really sets apart the Carthusian. There are other monastic orders that have a great deal of silence but they don't have extreme as solitude as the Carthusian does. So the Carthusian very uniquely, all of, all of your monks have to chant those eight hours, eight liturgical hour, hours of the day. So the Psalms and the readings starting at Matins, ending at Compline throughout the day. But the Carthusian uniquely spends a lot of those designated pray, prayer periods in solitude. So he doesn't, join the community for tersh or sext or known those are all prayed by himself in cell so it's very unique for its solitude the carthusians a week he should not speak to anyone except for once a week for a couple of hours on a community walk where you walk next to one person and then a couple yards in front of you is another two people and you walk around the monastery or monastery or um, out into the fields the surrounding kind of village so really no speaking, really complete solitude. There's a division between what they call the fathers and then the brothers. The fathers work in the cloister. They're the pantry man. They uh, tend the garden. They repair the monastery. The fathers are not supposed to step out of the cell. So they stay in the cell in quiet contemplation of God. And people will sometimes say like, wow what did you think about you must have spent all this time thinking about things but contemplation is god thinking and him pouring into you his thoughts which if god pours into you knowledge of himself what dionysius calls a dark ray then it's not going to be particular because god is not particular and so he's not a being he is being so you're not thinking so you're being taught God is teaching you, you're praying, but it's not, it's total silent. And it's not, not only silence exteriorly, but it's silence interiorly. So the monk is trying to get thoughts out of the way. So he sits in cell. I would sit in cell for hours and just as much as the Lord would grant total interior silence, saying Jesus's name, saying, come Holy Spirit you know, every couple of minutes and just allowing the Lord to fill, fill me with his truth and his love. So the contemplative life, <clears throat> a day for the Carthusian, you wake up just before midnight every day. And I, I think it's funny, San Alphonsus Liguori writes in his book to nuns, um, the truth, it's like true spouse of Christ. He says in there in his time, he says, you know, even the lukewarm religious orders still wake up at midnight to pray. Today, I think the only religious order that still wakes up at midnight to pray is the Carthusians. So you wake up just before midnight, the bell rings at midnight, you begin praying matins of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
So there's the office of the day, which all monks have to pray. And then there's the office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which are those small prayers and devotion to Our Lady just before. And then the Carthusians also have the office of the dead to pray for the souls who have passed. So before every office of the day, you have the office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So you're praying the matins of that in cell. Then you join everyone else for matins where you chant from about 1230 to 230 or 3.30, depending on the day. That's your matins in prime. You, nope, matins in lauds, sorry. You wake up at 7 a.m. Uh, in cell for prime. And then you have some time of reading silently to yourself, Lexio Divina, Mass. Uh, let's see, prime. Tersh is at 8 a.m. in cell. Mass is at 8.15 until about 9.15, 9.30. After Mass, you go back to cell. You can work in, in your enclosed garden if you would like. Back to reading, back to prayer. Uh, sext is at 11. Your food is dropped off in a hole cut into your wall next to your door at 11.30. You eat. That's, they call that dinner. And you eat from 11.30 till about 12.30. You put the meal back into the hole cut into the wall. For the majority of the year for the monk... You eat one meal a day, even though you can ask for some slices of bread in the afternoon, if you would like. That's the majority of the year. Uh, in a, the minority of the year, you can have, they'll bring just like a very small meal in the evening, but uh, you should, you know, as a monk fast, which means one meal a day. You got some time there. Then you've got known at 2.15. Vespers is at... 3.30 in cell of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 3.45 together. That's the other. So you, you get together for Mass every day, get together for the Midnight Office, then you get together for Vespers every day. That ends at 4.15, you come back to cell. And then Thomas from 4.15 to 6.45 was, in my opinion, the real Carthusian experience. For a lot of the year, it's getting dark. It's cold, likely. You have like one area of your cell where you can have heat, but even there, sometimes you're too busy to man the stove so it's cold it's dark you're in total solitude from the 415 to 645 which is compline and you get to really sit with our lord you get to wrestle with your disordered desires you miss things you want things if someone said one thing wrong to you two months ago on a walk it's going <laughs> to surface right there in that time uh, so a holy wrestling uh, with the Lord. So that's kind of the Carthusian line. Wow. Now, as you're going through that, um, it's interesting that, you know, uh, obviously, as you said, uh, Pope Pius XI, um, and just kind of this general idea is we, we hear this, right, that, that monks like the Carthusians do more for the salvation of souls and do more for the church um, than any other state of life. It's the most perfected state of life we can have in this life. Um, how is that the case uh, in your words as somebody who lived there and you're sitting there and you, you explain this of like, well, yeah, okay, that's nice. You're praying and all that, but what about, you know, um, the parishes and what about this? And, and as somebody who has been in that position, um, what ways do you think that's true? Okay. I would say two things. So the two pieces here that I'm hearing you mention, Thomas is why is this the perfect state? And then the second salvation of souls. So taking the first, first, would be, um, we are made for heaven. What is heaven? It is unending worship. The Carthusian life is the closest, like systematic, statute-based 
unending worship life. I mean, your whole life is that. It's prayer, it's contemplation. And those other things, you know, that's why there's not a ton of food because it's not about food. <laughs> it's not going to be about food in heaven either. Um, <clears throat> there's a little bit of time to work in the garden because you have a body and, you, you know, sometimes you have to, sometimes work brings a, quiet, a kind of tranquility to the body. It quiets the body, which allows you to quiet the mind. But it is the life right now closest to what we will hopefully live then for all eternity. So that's what I'd say about the state. Uh, the salvation of souls, having done door-to-door -door evangelization, uh, more or less subtracting those two years as a Carthusian, about eight years. Uh, faith comes through what is heard, Romans 10, 17, absolutely. But it's also the gift of God, and God has to give it. And God has chosen to give it through the prayers of others. No one can baptize themselves, you know, so that's someone else, someone else praying on your behalf, you know, baptizing you. Uh, yeah. So the priority, what is the priority priority? Is it the prayer of the, is it Therese of Lisieux or is it Francis Xavier? Those two great doctors of, of missions. And, and I think rightly so we have to, we have to say that it's the Therese of Lisieux that God must give the grace or everything the preacher says will go unheard. You know, people will not act on it. And sadly, I see that all the time, Thomas. You, you've said all the right words, and the key is turning, but the the engine won't start, and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, and no, I, I think you touched on it perfectly um, on both those accounts as you're kind of explaining the life, right? Like I remember when I was teaching, and I would talk about the Carthusians. Um, and I would show clips of Into Grand Silence. I, I believe is the name of it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's basically just a documentary highlighting the Carthusian life. And I, my students would get so frustrated. They're like, this is awful. It's so boring. They're just, they're just existing. And then I'd use that to be like, exactly, exactly. Right. Because as you mentioned, right, God is existence, right? He isn't, you know, the highest being in existence. So he is existence. And um, the kids, of course, didn't realize that they're making kind of a beautiful philosophical statement and saying that of, oh, these monks are just existing. It's like they are right, and that's our goal, and that's that's our hope. When we say, "Oh, I want to be in heaven," it's like I want to participate in that existence. Um, and you mm -hmm. see that, and it reflects that, and that's the beauty of it because it's not you know us in our fallen way, and especially so many of us who get distracted by the little things. Um, when we're just existing, it's you know we're we're you know going through the day and settling for all these lower goods. Um, but as mm -hmm. you described it, when you're sitting in your cell and you're you know actively receiving the grace of God. Um, you're existing in the proper way and, and it's a beautiful sense and a beautiful foretaste of heaven um, that is so far beyond all of us um, that it, it's incredible to, to hear your story and uh, bringing it to the second point of salvation of souls. Um, it's also really important to remember that that's the whole point of the divine office, right? Is to pray on behalf of the church and pray on behalf of people. And the idea that you have these communities like the Carthusians and other cloistered um, sisters and um religious communities that their entire prayer life is praying on our behalf you and i sitting here and everyone listening to this like you know they've never met us they will never meet us um but god willing when we're in heaven we're going to see these monks we're going to see these priests we're going to see these sisters who have prayed for us unceasingly every day and undoubtedly their grace helped us get to that point um mm -hmm. and it's so beautiful it's incredible to see them I, I like i think often 
of how grateful, you know, I am to these people who I've never met, right, and are praying for us, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, um, with that, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, your door-to-door evangelization because um, <laughs> what you're doing now uh, is very different from the Carthusian lifestyle. So you explain that time. Um, where does that kind of chapter end for you? Where does that come from to close? How is the spirit taking you from, hey, I want you to be in this extreme contemplative space to what you're doing now? Thomas, that's a that's a great question. And the door-to-door is a great segue because here I'm coming up on about two years with the Carthusians and I'm coming up on what will be temporary vows for me. I'm about to take temporary vows, which will be for three years. And so I go to my prior and I ask for his advice. Father, I want to do God's will. Am I supposed to be here? Am I supposed to be anywhere else? I loved it there. I loved it there. I look forward to seeing it again, God willing, in the future, in heaven. Uh, but I want to, you want to do God's will. So he wrote me a little note. And it's the two pieces, I still have that note, two pieces of it that I really took to prayer that were so helpful for me. As he says, consider the life of which you would give of yourself more. Excuse me, that was the first. The second of which you would open up more. Now, I think the second is kind of interesting. He knew me. We had talked a lot. So I, I think that second is kind of coming from his, his actual experience with me. But the first, consider the life of which you would give of yourself more. And I think, Thomas, here is the great tension on discernment. The tension between the objective and the subjective. So the objective meaning, you know, we do uh, the Vatican II document on perfect charity which all of us are called to, is on the religious life. That whole document, it's a document about the religious life. So that to follow Jesus, as he, to live as Jesus lived, which means those perfect continence, poverty, obedience, you know, that's the religious state. So, you know, there we have kind of a, we have a hierarchy of states. You have the religious state. Beneath that, the church is going to side with St. Paul on those who live the life of virginity, those who live the life of celibacy. And then, of course, we have the married life. So we have all of these states. We have an objective hierarchy within those states. But then there's you. You know, there's me. There's that personal part of the discernment. Okay, Lord, there's there's the object of distinction. Now, taking that and looking at me in my particular circumstances, in my particular day, my particular desires, my where do I go? So what I think what the prior was helping me see is that even though it's true that the Carthusian state abstractly considered most perfect salvation of souls from the contemplative most perfect, when I consider me, who had been doing door-to-door before I was a Carthusian, we wrote the book on how to do door-to-door evangelization. I always caught myself on walks trying to evangelize my Carthusian brothers. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to teach. So I'm looking at me and I'm saying, maybe me fits somewhere else here in the church body, in the church militant. And, uh, and I had great peace with that. And I went to my prior and I said, well, I feel that the Lord is calling me to, at that time, I thought most likely religious order, you know, right now, and I'm sure Thomas will kind of talk about that. I'm thinking, you know, is it is it a religious order? Is it is a diocesan uh, seminary? You know, where where is it, Lord? But I I still felt that call that might that Matthew nineteen twenty one. You know, poverty, continence, um, obedience, but more in the active state. 
in evangelization in teaching. And that's what sent evangelization is. We teach parishes and dioceses how to knock every door every year in obedience to Vatican II that all must be reached within the parish territory. So we that uh, Thomas, the other apostate, think Catholic, is really to help train and prepare those evangelists. So the YouTube account, the Instagram account. And I, I feel a great peace. I feel at home. Uh, Thomas, probably in your own story or, or other people you've spoken to, it's always uh, you jump out into the dark. You know, it's, you pray, you hope. Lord, I hope this is your will. I'm taking the next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love what you said about the the fact of while we do have those objectively higher states of life, right? Religious life being being that because it reflects again our, our end goal, right? The the perfected humanity and, and soul is is that idea of that perfect self gift. Um, but there is that subjective reality which you spoke about, and I, I give the example all the time of um, Father Mike Schmitz, right? Because everyone knows the guy, everyone loves the guy, um, and it's very clear, right? You look at someone like him, and you're like, oh man, he's killing it. He's he's in his great um, vocation, right? He found the state of life that that he was called to, um, and we know that obviously by his fruits and by the joy, and you can just see it. Um, and now that's not to say I'm sure Mr. and Mrs. Mike Schmitz would have been a lovely family, right? Like, they, like, like there's nothing about the guy that thinks, you know, that would lead me to think like, oh, no, he'd be terrible. But like, would Mr. and Mrs. Mike Schmitz have been um, the saints in the making that he is very clearly today? Um, the answer, I, I don't know, right? And I don't want to assume and, and maybe. Um, but what's beautiful is the fact that we can look at him now in his state of life and we see that as yes. Right. And I look at it in my own state of life. Father Thomas probably would have been good. Right. Obviously, I'm biased. Right? I think best, I, yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm biased. I think I would have, you know, gave good homilies and, and run a good parish. But would I've been a saint. I don't know. Um, and that's really part of that discernment is what is God calling us not only to do well, but also to give up and to sacrifice and be purified of um, the priesthood may come really easy to some people. The married life may come really easy to some people. And while there's a sense of ease and joy that you should get from your state of life vocation, um, we're not called to do what's easy. We're called to be purified and sanctified from it. The amount that I've grown in my short, you know, almost two years of marriage is significantly more than the four years I spent in seminary. Um, now, that's not to say I didn't, that time was wasted by no means, right? It's what ultimately led me here. Um, but I am closer to being a saint because of my vocation of marriage than I would have been in that vocation of priesthood. Um, and so I, I, I love the fact that you're highlighting that because I think it's so important. And I think you can see that of like, you know, you express your love for the Carthusians and the contemplative life. And again, God doesn't waste our time. You very clearly mm-hmm. got graces and grew during that time. Um, mm-hmm. But I imagine that you're closer to being a saint now. Um, and that's the beauty of it. Um, so with that, do you want to kind of dive into a little bit of where are you at now, right? What's your discernment process? You're obviously doing a lot of fantastic work, um, a lot of kind of just really, um, and, and if you want to flesh it out a little bit more of what you're kind of doing with um, sent evangelization, but like you're very clearly doing a lot of that. Um, but as you mentioned, you're still actively discerning. So, so without, you know, um, us like pulling back all the curtains and everything, what's the day-to-day life? What's the discernment process going for you right now? That's a great question, Thomas. So discernment for me right now. Um, so my my tendency, the religious state, because of, you know, just the objectivity of it, you know, as a good, it's good for us. Um, 
I've visited various religious communities, excuse me. And again, we're, you know, we're thinking about, but you know, you as a, as a, an individual person in the abstract, you know, you're very concrete in this abstract ladder of states of life that the Carthusian life has very much changed me. It has very formed me. Um, and I was speaking to a diocesan priest once. He had left the monastery, discerned out of the monastery after longer than I, about four, four to six years. And he said that he felt like the formation had been so well done that he was really formed in a way that could not be reformed into a different spirituality of a religious order. Now, I thought, I think that's interesting in that right now I've, I do kind of pick up a lot of the Carthusian pieces, not all of them. I'm not waking up at midnight to pray, you know, hopefully that's all right. <laughs> but um, I've retained a lot of that that I'm very comfortable with that I, I believe is, is kind of a means to my own sanctification as you're talking about Thomas. So, so as I look at the, there's that. And then a lot of <laughs> many religious orders, sadly, uh, maybe don't have the rigor, let's say. And again, I'm coming from the Carthusians. I had a had a vocations director tell me, he said, you're going to come visit us. And you're going to say, yeah, these guys don't know how to pray. They don't know how to fast. You know, they don't. <laughs> and so I have to, I have to give credence to that. But, um, you know, not all religious orders are as, let's say, so the word would be strict. Would, you know, the saints would use that word strict, strict observance. Not all religious orders are as strict in their observance of the councils or even of their own rule or statutes. And, and so Thomas, some of the, some of my thought is maybe the diocesan life has enough flexibility in its spirituality, in its day-to-day -day interior, uh, its rule that'll allow me to retain this Carthusianness and thrive and thrive and kind of that. So I'm, I'm thinking about that very seriously, Thomas. The other is these pieces you mentioned, sent evangelization, think Catholic. The Lord, the Lord has already begun moving the ball with these projects. Now, in the diocesan life, Father Mike Schmidt's a great example. He's doing everything. <laughs> you know, he's got the podcast, he's doing the speaking events, like everywhere I turn, there's another Father Mike Schmidt's doing something. So in the diocesan life uniquely, there is bandwidth. For these for these apostolates if the lord has called you to these kinds of apostolates and and it it looks like at least right now that uh, the lord is blessing these these apostolates so that's another consideration that i have thomas when i'm looking at the, the concreteness of me and my particular circumstances yes that's where i'm leaving yeah. i pray no. i have <laughs> one last thing thomas is uh you know, of course, never discern alone. We're mm -hmm. totally blind to ourselves. Always have a third person, someone from the outside to look at you and to critique your decisions and choices. And so I do have a, a spiritual director who's been with me for so very long and who's able to look into what I'm saying uh, as well. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, and I really appreciate you for sharing that and kind of, of bearing it because I think it's so important, right, for people to hear that, um, you know, again at the end of the day right we're using all this technical language and discerning and religious and diocesan um but at the core of it and it's very clear uh you're pursuing god right you're pursuing his love 
and you're responding right to his love. I, I love that. If like this, I think we need to cultivate more of this spirituality of a, a posture of reception and response, right? Of like um, really kind of that karma. Like, I think of John of the Cross, right? Of, of clearing out, right? It's not some. We use the analogy of climbing up the mountain and all of that, and like that, that's good, right? Because it, in some ways, the spiritual life is like that. Um, but I think more so it's the clearing out, right? It's the clearing out. Um, so that way God can come and land, uh, in us. And it's beautiful to, to hear you kind of break that down. Um, what's your advice for young men, young women who are discerning, who are in kind of that similar position, who are maybe just starting out, right? They're in those, you know, early days and, um, kind of like where you were at the start of this of like, you are, have fallen in love with Christ. He's very clearly calling you by name. Um, but you don't know where, what's your advice to those kind of initial um, fervors of discernment? I think, I think that it's smart because all of us are called to imitate Christ in a certain way. I think we're called to live out those counsels in whatever way. I think it's smart for a young person to, to go discern, to actually go, you know, physically go to a religious community at some point, you know, so women, you know, maybe it's a, a convent or uh, an active sisters apostolate men, something very similar, go and actually live there, live that life. Like let's say a month, perhaps I know mother Teresa's nuns, they'll, they'll house people for that amount of time. They'll help. I would, I would say if you want to discern, begin there, go to a religious community, spend a month there, pray that whole time for the grace of clarity in your vocation, then step back. Right. And then begin to think, on okay well i've i've seen that um is the is the lord giving me the grace to continue that life is he is he asking me you know some other way that's the first thing like you know don't do discernment outside of a religious order i mean at some point go to a religious order and go actually discern with them i just think sadly thomas i mean we talk about discernment all the time no one actually takes a step in yep. a direction <laughs> so so actually go somewhere uh, the second is I would say read, read what saints think about these different lives, like read Alphonsus Liguori, uh, read St. Thomas Aquinas, read St. Augustine, read the church. Yeah, I mean, on all of these different kinds of states, but try and put on the mind of Christ as it's displayed through his saints and the church. Go pray and, um, yeah, and trust. As you said, Thomas which is really a word for me today that uh, there's, they're not wrong turns. <laughs> they're just, a, it's a windy straight road, let's say. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Again, in the, in our linear thinking, it, it does, it looks like we're, Oh, well, you know, God's picking up the pieces. It's like, no, 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 it, it is. It's the, the beautiful analogy of God is that, uh, that composer, right. And the beautiful symphony of our life of, you know, we're over here and he has the, he has the chords and we're playing the notes and rather than him stopping the symphony and starting over writing a new piece, he is, he's just weaving the new, um, melody out of that. Um, and it gives me a lot of hope, right. Cause I, I remember in those days when I had just left the seminary or, um, we're in discernment and, you know, I was so frustrated. I was so angry. It's like, man, I just wasted all those years. Um, but, um, you know, ironically, um, my wife 
and I we knew each other before I went to seminary and we had lost touch but I would always um, like ask her on dates and everything as a, a dumb high schooler before seminary um, and rightfully so she wanted nothing to do with me um, <laughs> and it wasn't until I came back from seminary and had worked on myself and um, again this was all kind of providential and it wasn't certainly the goal I thought I was I, like you when I had left formation I thought I was going back right I thought I was going into a religious community um, but had met her in the meantime um, but it was through that transformation that she realized, oh, hey, you're not the dumb kid who, uh, you know, I thought you were. Um, and that that I, I always use that as an example, um, one, because it's a great pitch for when I'm telling my students to, like you said, go discern, right? Because like, you're either going to end up professed religious, a priest or, you know, a, a better potential spouse and, and more attractive to whoever you're called to marry, um, which is always a good thing. Um, but I use it as that of like, there's not that wasted time. And again, if the end goal, like God doesn't just have unlimited time, right? He is outside of time um, and he wants us to be with him and spend time with him. And and if that's in the shape of discernment or if that's in the shape of our working in our ministry, uh, it's all good things. And we're getting more like him, which is the end goal. Um, Amen. So, yeah. So, uh, Austin, I really appreciate you sharing your story um, very clearly. Um Again, I, I know it's it's one of those things where <laughs> from the outside looking in, it's like, man, this guy gets it. He gets it. I know it might not feel like that on the day to day when you're like, Lord, where am I supposed to go? Um, but exactly. thank you. Your story is inspiring and it, it's certainly helped me and given me stuff to reflect on and hopefully the listeners as well. But uh, count on my prayers for you. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see where you end up. And either way, it's going to be good. It's going to be great. So um, it's awesome to see. So thank you again. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, God bless you. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Yeah, of course. Real quick, uh, where we mentioned um, Scent and Think, and where can people find you? Where Where do you want the people to go? Uh, so Scent Evangelization, scentevangelization.org. There's a book, free PDF, right there on the side if you learn, want to learn about how to do neighborhood evangelization for yourself, for your parish, your diocese. God willing, the resources are there. Reach out if I can help. Uh, thinkcatholic.org uh, is our blog. Instagram uh, as well for the short videos or YouTube if you prefer. And that's just for ongoing faith formation and apologetics training. Awesome. Yeah, no, I can't recommend uh, both those enough. Um, really, those it's a whole separate podcast for sure. Um, but awesome work. And uh, yeah, if you're looking for some really edifying content and good stuff, uh, you know, um, outside of this one, of course, uh, <laughs> check out uh, Think Catholic. I, I was looking through some of the videos. It's It's phenomenal stuff. So uh, I commend you a lot on that as well. Thank you. Yeah. So awesome. Well, Austin, thanks so much. And um, hopefully we'll catch up to you in a few years when you're either Brother Austin, Father Austin, Mr. Austin, one of those we'll see. I uh, can't wait to see your journey. Fantastic. Praise God. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. <laughs>